Welcome to Shift, the podcast designed to inform and educate you about weight loss. In each episode, I will interview an expert in weight loss, from doctors to dietitians, as well as people who have experienced successful and long-term weight loss themselves. It is our goal to help all our listeners get the real facts and latest knowledge on how to lose weight effectively and sustainably, plus some inspiring stories to help motivate you to start now. I look forward to joining you on the journey. Hi there and welcome to Shift It. I'm so glad you could join me for today's episode. My name is Glenna Swinette, CEO, founder of Formulite, and today I'm excited to be talking to Professor Wendy Brown, an upper GI and bariatric surgeon. Wendy is the Program Director for Surgical Services and Chair of the Monash University Department of Surgery at the Alfred Hospital. In addition, she is the Director of the Gastric and Bariatric Unit at the Alfred Hospital, as well as the Clinical Director of the ANZ Bariatric Surgery Registry and Clinical Lead of the Victorian State Upper GI Cancer Registry. Her research interests focus on the health benefits from weight loss, optimal service delivery models for bariatric surgery and registry science. We'll be talking about the evolution of bariatric surgery, the barriers to access for some patients to this surgery, and the work Wendy has undertaken in establishing the Bariatric Surgery Registry and its purpose. Thank you so much for your time, Wendy, and welcome. Thanks, Glenna. Thank you very much for inviting me. To start with, Wendy, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? So I'm a general surgeon. I've trained as a general surgeon, meaning that predominantly operate in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Um, that my focus has become, or my subspecialty area is really on the stomach and the esophagus. Mm-hmm. So most of my work relates to anything that involves the stomach and the esophagus. So that can be cancer, it can be reflux disease, and it also can be um, helping people with obesity lose weight through bariatric surgery. Um, that's the sort of technical part of my life. The other part of my life is around research and teaching, so looking at how we do things and how we can do them better. And um, I also have a role where I sort of look at, um, I guess, just the the nuts and bolts of the hospital making, you know, operations happen. Mm, mm. So it's kind of a busy um, busy life, but lots three different sorts of arms that are really enjoyable and I feel very fortunate to have such a great opportunity. Fantastic. I'm keen to hear a bit more about your story in regards to what inspired you to specialise in esophageal and bariatric surgery. Well, when you, um, I never thought I'd be a surgeon. When I started mm-hmm. med school, I thought I'd be a GP or then I thought I'd be an obstetrician. But then when I was an intern, I had some pretty inspirational um, bosses mm. or sort of more senior surgeons who sort of took me a, sort of under their wing, I suppose, and mm-hmm. made a real point of saying, why don't you do surgery? Like, you, you're smart, you seem to be good at this, mm. you like fixing things, you know, you should really think about surgery. And until that point, I'd never really given it serious thought. I'd liked it at medical school, mm. and I'd always thought it was really, it was sort of very satisfying because you'd see people come in and they had appendicitis, for example, that surgeons did a little operation, and then the next day the people, you know, were not in pain anymore. They looked really healthy mm. and they went home well. And that sort of was quite, seemed to me quite satisfying. 
So when they kept encouraging me to think about it, I thought, well, maybe I do need to think about it. And so I kind of gave it a bit of a go, not expecting to love it. But mm. then next thing I knew, it's what I was doing. And um, at that time, there weren't a huge number of women doing surgical training. Mm. Um, that was been about 1993 that I was an intern. So about 94, 95, I started my surgical training. And in 96, I got into the specialty training program. But at the Alfred where I trained, already at that time, there was 30% of the general surgery trainees were women. So it was kind of a hospital that was a little bit ahead of its time, mm. that was actively seeking to sort of promote and help women go into surgery. Mm -hmm. And I always felt very, very supported. And then just like the sort of just that casual sort of mentorship, I suppose, or people at least taking the time to encourage me, then I was sort of encouraged to think about research because Chris mm. Christofi, who was one of my bosses, then mm. said, look, in 20 years' time, you're going to think, you know, how could I do this better? Why, why do I, I've done this now for 20 years and I think there's ways that I could do it better. But if you do a research degree, that gives you a construct or an, a sort of a set of practices that enable you to explore those questions mm. more readily. And I'm so glad he gave me that advice because the research is really enabled me to have a really not just interesting technical career interesting clinical career where I help people mm. but also maybe helps me think about how I can help a broader scope of people or help people into the future by doing things better mm. fascinating thanks for sharing um, I'd love to start our discussion today by giving the listeners some insight into the evolution of bariatric surgery now we've come a long way in medicine since the first weight loss surgery procedure was performed in America in the 1950s. Can you tell me more about how you've seen it evolve both around the world and in Australia? Yeah, sure. Look, um, one of the people that mentored me and really encouraged me to think about surgery was Paul O'Brien, mm. and he was certainly one of the pioneers of bariatric surgery and probably one of the first surgeon scientists to take on bariatric mm. surgery because it was Paul's group that started doing the first randomised controlled trials comparing different um, bariatric procedures when he was working over in Adelaide. Mm. Um, and he was working for James... I can't remember now. He's, uh, sorry, Dick Glennis, I can't remember the name. <laughs> but it'll come to me. He now has a winery. Um, anyway, oh, OK. Um, Lucky man. <laughs> the, the team over at, at Adelaide. So yeah. I suppose it's better to say than say that. So, um, he was working with the team in Adelaide that... Yeah. Um, did the first randomised controlled trial. So before that, bariatric surgery was seen as a little bit fringe, I think. It was oh, something okay. that, mm -hmm. you know, people were like, well, there was a lot, wasn't a lot of empathy for people with obesity. Mm, so it was yeah. a bit like depression in those days where people would say, well, just fuck yourself up, mm. get over it, you know. Eat less, yourself, eat, exercise like, more. Eat less, <laughs> exercise more. Mm, Why I would you do that. an operation to help these people? They're hopeless, you know. Oh, that was the kind yeah, of yeah. sense around it. But And... As you say, those very first operations started in the 50s and most of them were kind of byproducts of other operations. Like one of the first ones was done where they plugged some of the bowel into the colon so that you bypassed all the bowel thinking they'd help people with cholesterol because they didn't have cholesterol tablets in those days. Oh, yeah. And it did help their cholesterol, but they also died of malnutrition. So it wasn't, <laughs> you know, it wasn't Oops. really a win-win situation. <laughs> no. um, but the very first sort of mainstream bariatric surgeries were done around 1967 when they started doing raw mygastric bypasses. Mm -hmm. But they were all done through a massive cut in the mm -hmm. tummy. Mm -hmm. And so rerouting the bowel in people who are quite heavy was technically quite demanding. The instruments mm. they had in those days wasn't very good. Mm. And 
also the anesthetic wasn't as good so people's recovery was much slower mm. and the risks of the surgery were incredibly high so i think along with the sort of natural well, not natural actually the along with the stigma that mm. people with obesity faced in those days there was also genuine risk in the operations because mm. they were big and they were you know, Sounds like it. Yeah. You know, really um, quite confronting for a person's physiology to get through. Around the 80s, they started doing a few more simpler stapling procedures, which mm-hmm. were enabled by the fact that, you know, the manufacturers started to be able to make these stapling guns that mm-hmm. enabled us to divide the bowel more easily than cutting it and then sewing oh, it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they started some, you know, you might have heard of stomach stapling procedures mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. got a little bit fashionable in the 1980s. And they could be done through a much smaller cut, maybe 10 centimetres. So the recovery from that was a lot easier. Mm. And also you weren't resecting or removing bowel. So that meant mm. or rerouting bowel. So again, the recovery was a little easier. But what really revolutionised bariatric surgery was the evolution of laparoscopic or keyhole surgery. Mm. So keyhole surgery started when I was was really starting to come in its own, to start being explored around 1991, 92. Mm. So my last couple of years at medical school, um, the gynecologists had been using laparoscopes probably for a few years before that, but it started shifting into the abdominal surgery realm around then. And as those that equipment, the telescopes, the equipment got better and better, it actually meant that for operating on someone with obesity, we could actually do that more easily mm-hmm. because we didn't need the big cut. Mm-hmm. And because we were maybe using six little five millimeter or 10 millimeter cuts um, the anesthetic risk was a lot less mm. the pain relief needed after the surgery was a lot less and also we started to develop products like the adjustable gastric band mm. which a bit like the old stapling procedures was a bit different because it restricted the stomach but it was just by simply putting a ring around the stomach that could mm. be adjusted by putting fluid in and out mm. so suddenly surgery became more accessible it became safer and obviously, um, the, the ideas around obesity and what caused obesity started to shift. And we started to see that it was really not that someone was hopeless and that they couldn't control what they were eating. Mm. There's a very powerful physiology. People with obesity are fighting when they try to lose weight. And so the scene started to shift and we started to get better at laparoscopic surgery. And the first one was probably the gastric band. Then there was... Um, people started in the early 2000s to be able to do the Rouen-Y gastric bypass mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. laparoscopically, then the sleeve gastrectomy, which is where we resect um, part of the stomach away, 80 to 90% of the stomach away, and leave you behind with a little skinny tube. That's sort of, I think the first one was done around 2005. Um, that was attempted, and it wasn't really attempted as a standalone procedure. It was with the thought that for people who are particularly heavy, that they would do that as the first step, mm-hmm. then they'd move on to another procedure, which is oh, called okay. a, a BPD, a biliopancreatic diversion. Mm. These are all just technical, another form of mm. a bypass, mm. I guess. Mm. And so that that was you get them to lose enough weight so that you could do the second stage, which is the rerouting of the bowel. But then they found that people actually lost quite a lot of weight with yeah. that alone. So there's been a lot of shifts, and it's been a combination of the changing way we can do surgery and the technology mm. that supports that but also a shift in understanding that obesity is a disease and it's a disease that's terribly difficult for an individual to mm. fight on their own and that we can use surgery to manipulate the bowel 
in various different ways and very effectively therefore help people control their appetite and therefore enable them for the first time to really keep the weight off that they've lost mm. into the long term. It's interesting to hear how um, the, the surgeries developed and at the same point in time societies, the way society viewed people who are being obese and the, and, and the research that came out to show that these people aren't in control of their weight and it's something that's set up when, you know, in the first few years of their um, being born, that all this sort of happened at the same time and it was like, you know, the surgery, the acceptance and the destigmatization of being obese. Um, yeah. So that's quite, quite, quite important to see. Um, can you give us just a brief overview? You've, you've touched on a number of types of bariatric surgeries, but um, a brief overview of each of those surgeries and how, um, how they uh, produce weight loss. And... Sure. Look, um, in Australia at the moment, the mm -hmm. sleeve, and internationally, in fact, mm -hmm. the sleeve gastrectomy would be the most commonly performed mm -hmm. procedure. In that procedure, when the um, patient's asleep, we pop a wee tube down through their mouth that's about any... It's, 36 millimetres wide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we use that as a guide to help us um, take away um, 80 to 90% of the stomach. Mm -hmm. And that leaves behind a little skinny tube of stomach. So your mm -hmm. esophagus now, instead of your esophagus is the tube that connects your mouth to your, your stomach, it mm -hmm. runs through the chest mm -hmm. and it carries the food down there. And normally it's pushing the food into kind of like a big kidney bean swimming pool, mm -hmm. let's say because that's what your stomach looks like. Mm. When we take away that sort of 80 to 90% and create a little mm. skinny tube, suddenly the esophagus is just pushing that food into um, kind of like a high resistance pipe mm. and then it gets shot out straight into the bowel. So two things happen then. The little nerves at the lower end of the esophagus are triggered four times as much because it has to push four times as hard to get mm. one mouthful through. So that sort of tricks your body into believing one mouthful of food is four mouthfuls mm. of food because it's oh, working wow. just as hard as it normally would for mm. four mouthfuls of food. Secondly, the food gets through that little skinny tube far more quickly so it triggers off all the hormones that make you feel full or make you feel satiated mm. um, with a lesser volume of food, with a lesser concentration of food. So you, after about a half a cup of food, feel, people describe feeling quite full. Mm. Also, if you eat sugar, it comes through in a more concentrated form and that overstimulates your pancreas. And your pancreas um, shoots out a hormone called insulin. Mm. And somewhat conversely, because it overreacts to the sugar you've eaten, and it sort of somewhat conversely drops your blood sugar level. So you feel hot and sweaty and clammy. Mm feel like you're going to be sick like a hypo mm. and then the sugar drags fluid into your bowel and you get profuse diarrhea so that's what we call dumping so most mm. people then stay well away from sugar after this operation mm. the other way it works is the particular part of this um, stomach we take or um, remove from the body and this is an irreversible procedure mm. when we take that take that bit of the stomach away it reduces a hormone called ghrelin mm. and that's the hunger hormone there's only one hunger hormone in the body and that's ghrelin mm. So for the first nine months or so, people are quite profoundly disinterested in food. Mm. Over time, though, ghrelin does get produced by other cells in the body and the appetite does come back a little bit. Interestingly, the ghrelin also has an impact on your mood centre. So the mood and the appetite centre sit right next door to each other in the brain. Mm. So anything that makes you happy or sad will have an impact on your appetite. Mm. 
Mm. and vice versa if you're hungry you can feel quite angry for example mm, yes so yes. Mm. when you lose the hunger hormone people can feel a bit flat and that particularly if they're prone to mood disorders that can persist for a few months so always warn people that don't worry if you feel a bit flat after this mm. and it usually will get better so that's one operation um, and so people just don't feel like eating as much and they feel full quicker when mm, they yeah. eat it um, the adjustable gastric band is a wee device we fit just below where the stomach joins the esophagus. So again, instead of food going straight down into that kidney-shaped swimming pool of a stomach, mm. it has to push itself past that band that we can make tighter or looser by adjusting through a little porthole. And because the esophagus, again, has to push that one mouthful really hard, mm. it's working four times as hard and again sends those signals to the brain saying, tricking the body into believing a little bit of food is a lot of food. Mm. Then there's a few different types of bypass procedures. Um, in all of them, we create a pouch of stomach um, that can hold instead of, we divide the stomach so you can only hold about half a cup of food at a time. Mm -hmm. And then we either sort of loop a, a bit of bowel, we measure out about 150 centimetres of bowel and loop that up onto that little stomach pouch and join it so that the food goes straight from that little pouch into directly into the bowel and mm -hmm. doesn't go through the first part of the bowel called the duodenum. Mm -hmm. Or we kind of divide this, divide the bowel and bring one end up and hog, hook that onto the stomach pouch. Then we hook all the gastric juices in about 100 centimetres down mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the track, and that's called the Y, the Ruan Y. That's why it's called a Ruan mm -hmm. Y. But either way, in both those operations, the food is only going into a little small pouch of stomach and the food now no longer goes through that first bit of this bowel called the duodenum. Mm -hmm. So that changes the way the body reacts to food and it changes all your gut hormones. And so again, people feel quite full after a small amount of food that they eat. Mm -hmm. They don't feel like eating for a prolonged period after that small amount of food. Mm -hmm. Whereas normally if you ate half a cup of food, you'd be starving yeah. in 20 mm -hmm. minutes time. And also because the digestive juices aren't hitting the food for about 100, 100 or 150 mm -hmm. centimetres, you don't absorb all the food you eat. No. So for all those reasons, people lose weight. And again, with the bypass, because there's this sugar coming into the bowel in a more concentrated form, if you eat sugar, you get dumping. Mm -hmm. So people tend to stay away, away from sugar. And with the bypass procedures, because the bile isn't also hitting it, they often get a lot of diarrhoea. So again, they stay away from fatty foods. So it forces them into a high-protein <laughs> diet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stick to the healthy stuff. Um I've heard there's been a, uh, a big shift away from the restrictive surgeries such as the lap band towards the more malabsorbative procedures such as the gastric sleeve and bypass. Um, can you explain why the possible reason for this over the last five years? I think that there has been a shift away from the gastric band. Mm. Um, I don't like the term restrictive. I think it's more of a satiating of juicing mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it doesn't... We used to think it worked, you know, when we first started doing them. We thought it worked because food sat above the band and it was a bit like a... Oh, like a coffee percolator, mm -hmm, it just sort of percolated mm -hmm. through, but it's not really like that. Mm. It's really that extra activity that generates that feeling of satiety or satiation. Mm. And when we do studies, we see very little food actually sits above the band. Most of it goes through oh, into okay. the stomach. Okay. And the sleeve probably functions actually very similar in a very similar way to the band mm -hmm. because of that activity mm. that's um, going on in the esophagus. But I think the move away from the band... So the band was done in very large numbers in the 90s because it was one of the first ones we could do laparoscopically. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when things get taken up quickly, 
often our enthusiasm runs ahead of the science and of our understanding of how to actually do it properly. Mm, mm. And so I think a lot of people have bad experiences where people had these bands put in and they were over-adjusted, so there's mm. too much fluid put in them, so they vomited a lot. Um, they were not put in the correct place and they slipped mm. and they moved. And we learned a lot about the band in that first 10 years, but unfortunately that enthusiasm probably got ahead of mm. where the science was at. And also the band does require that you really commit to coming in and talking to your team regularly mm. about what you're eating, why you're eating, how you're eating and having the adjustments. Now, personally, I think that's a good thing mm. because it means you're coming in, getting the coaching, making sure that you're being checked on and we can make sure you get that optimum outcome. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, they're busy, they don't have the time mm. and they don't want to commit to it. Yeah. The sleeve is starting to go out of fashion. Um, oh, really? Yeah, okay. internationally now, a lot of people are really moving away from it because there's a lot of reflux. And the results of the sleeve are very good out to five years, but out mm. to 10 years, they're not seeming to be quite as durable as either the band or the bypass. Wow. That's okay. um, a bit of a watch this space. Mm. And the bypass, you know, people went out off the bypass in the 90s because there are issues with malabsorption of um, mm -hmm. vitamins, nutritional issues. Um, ulcers can be very common. You can get bowel obstructions. So there are some fairly significant long-term sequelae of a bypass. Mm -hmm. And that's why people are, another reason I think people very enthusiastically embrace the gastric band because mm. it was a simple and safe and quick and reversible procedure. Yes. Mm. So it's, I feel like in surgery I'm starting to get old enough that I see things shift and flow. Mm. Mm. And I feel like we're starting to see a little bit more enthusiasm for the band overseas again, oh, but more in the day surgery setting. Okay. And particularly mm. for young women who, you know, for a more... You know, mm. reversible option. The sleeve is probably coming from its peak of enthusiasm. Now we're seeing a bit of a peak for the the one anastomosis or mini bypass. Mm -hmm. mm. So it's it's interesting to watch, and that's why I think our registry that I think we're coming to later is so mm. important mm. because we need to track what's going on and we need mm. to see what the outcomes are at a community level, mm. so that we can actually properly inform our patient what's likely most going to be the most beneficial operation for them. Do you do you think that? Um, that this move um, initially from the band to the uh, bypass and no, for the band to, pardon me, for the sleeve, it was largely influenced by public demand or by surgeons or by research or a combination of all of them? Or? I think everything but research. I think. Ah, <laughs> unfortunately. I think, um, yeah, and look, there's no doubt. Look, when we look at our band patients at five years, um, the sleeve patient, and we compare them to our sleeve patients, mm. the sleeve patients have probably lost three or four more kilos at five mm. years, which in the scheme of things, not mm. a huge amount. Mm. Yeah. Um, the band patients have less reflux, mm. but the sleeve patients are more highly satisfied with the variety of food they can eat. Okay. So there's no doubt with the band, there's certain foods you'll just never eat again, like mm. white doughy bread and very dry meat. Mm. Whereas with the sleeve, people can eat more meat. So the quality of eating is better with a sleeve. Mm. doesn't mean they still don't need the support of their team to teach them how mm. to eat and what mm. to eat. Mm. The coaching is still critical. Mm. but um, And they'll get a better outcome if they you know, take on board that this mm. is just part of a whole of lifestyle change. Mm, definitely. Um, but I think there was definitely some patient acceptability factors. There's certainly some surgeon acceptability factors because... Mm. For a lot of surgeons, they've come from a general surgery background like me where we do an operation like a hernia or an appendix and we never see you again. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the band, you're committing to be their friend for life. Mm -hmm. You have to have a structure in place where you've got dietitians, psychologists, mm -hmm. physicians, bariatricians, you know, a whole team around you to support that. And that takes a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of surgeons, it was much easier to say, 
I'm going to do a sleeve. And when they first started, people were calling them set and forget procedures or sleeve mm. and leave. Sleeve and leave. Which is horrible. Yeah, it horrible. Is. <laughs> you know, obesity is a chronic disease and we need to treat mm. it with that same respect as we do any other chronic disease. Mm. Um, luckily, I think that's shifted away. I think that's where the research has come in mm. from the rear, mm. sort of showing where things work and how they fit. Mm. Fascinating. Um, are there any new types of bariatric surgeries that you've seen which may have merit in the future that you feel? Look, at the moment, people are talking about the SADES and the SIPs, which are sort of single anastomosis, duodenal switches and bypasses. Mm. And they're basically just bigger bypasses mm. and dividing okay. the stomach in a slightly different place. Um, there are some endoscopic techniques people are talking about. Mm. There's a clip that people are talking about. It's like a big clip they put along the oh. stomach so to kind of create a sleeve but without resecting the stomach. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so it looks like, you know, those hair clips that you yes, use yes, to yes, hold yes, a bun yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's always something new and exciting coming. I think the future, though, is really as much as anything about looking at how we use what we've got more cleverly and mm. a bit like what we call personalised medicine, starting to mm. understand what it is about a given individual's biology, psychology, sociology, mm that they're going to respond to and is it surgery, is it medication, is it a combination mm. of both, mm. is it an endoscopic treatment and really starting to drill down and understanding what's driving an individual person's disease of obesity and see how we can help them in the most beneficial mm. way for them. And it's not all about you know how much weight you lose, it's really about how much health you gain mm. and how much quality of life you gain. Definitely. It sounds like most... Like most aspects of medicine, bariatric surgery is constantly evolving and techniques are being refined to give the patient the best and safest possible outcome. Um, I'd love to talk to you about the registry, which we touched on before. Um, can you explain why it was established? So it was established as an initiative of the Obesity Surgery of Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, it's Obesity Surgery Society of Australia and New Zealand, OSANS. It's now called ANSMOS because mm -hmm. we now acknowledge it's metabolic and obesity surgery. Mm -hmm. But... Nonetheless, back in 2008, they, the board at the time decided that we really should be tracking the outcomes of these procedures because we know for historically when new techniques come in and everyone uptakes them rapidly, that's a really dangerous time for patients. And we were seeing quite a big upswing and uptake of mm -hmm. bariatric surgery in that time. It took us about four years um, to get the funding to do a pilot and that was when I was president of OSANS and I thought, well, this registry thing either lives or dies with me, I suppose. <laughs> so we went out and we were able, fortunate enough to get enough money together to do a little pilot in Victoria. And we proved that we could um, capture and follow operations um, that were being done around Victoria. And we, at that stage, followed the patients for three or four years. Now we're following them out to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And on the back of that, we were able to attract some money from the government that enabled us to roll it out across the country. Mm -hmm. And what the registry aspires to do is to improve the quality and safety of bariatric surgery in Australia and New Zealand. And we do that by um, our patients gift us their information mm. about what operation they've had, what their weight and their height was at the time of surgery. We capture what devices were used and then we check up on them at 90 days and make sure that they're hopefully still alive and also that they haven't had a complication yes. mm. or return to theatre. And we capture all of those outcomes, mm. so those safety outcomes. We capture where they had the surgery, who their surgeon was. And then each year we check back, touch face and find out. Oh, we also find out if they're diabetic okay. and what medications they might be on for diabetes. And then every year we check touch base and find out, you know, have they needed to have further surgery? Are they still diabetic? If so, are they on any medications for their diabetes? Mm. And um, also what their weight is. Mm. And we track that for 10 years. 
So by tracking things, we can see what trends are. We can see what different operations are being done where, who's mm. doing what. Mm. We can see if there's an area where there's a lot more bad outcomes than other mm. areas. Mm. But we can also see where there's really good outcomes and we can mm. find out what those people are doing so that we can all learn from it. Um, we're finding out what's going on with diabetes as a surrogate marker for health. And w- mm. what we're seeing is about 15% of the people who go undergo a an obesity operation in Australia at the moment and New Zealand are diabetic. Mm-hmm. By one year, um, 30% of people at the beginning um, of those diabetics are on insulin. By one year, that's down to about 10% needing insulin. Oh, fantastic. Um, and by one year, less than around 50% of them are not having any treatment other than their bariatric surgery mm. for their diabetes. It's really powerful Brilliant. Mm. at helping people control that disease. And we're able to see which weight loss is being achieved by each procedure. We're able to see which, mm. how it tracks into the long term. And that just gives us a whole lot of information that can inform the quality and safety of what we're doing. Mm. It can be used to inform our patients about so that they can sort of get better understanding mm. of what they might experience and what they might realistically expect um, in terms of weight loss and in terms of health change. And it also can be helpful the government to look and see well there's real areas of need where no surgery is happening at all yeah and how yeah. can we how can we address that exactly um what percentage of the patient population are you hoping to capture look we're aiming to get 100 mm. percent. if we could get 90 percent, we'd be really happy at the moment we're capturing somewhere between 70 and 80 percent. okay all right that's not bad um and is participation in the registry compulsory for surgeons it's not it's it's compulsory for membership of ANSMOS, but that's a little bit hard to mm. um, hard to we you know hard to initiate. Mm. Um, I guess we've always hoped that people would see the benefits, and that's mm. the reason why mm. they participate. Because you know it does take time for them to fill in forms. Mm. Their secretaries, their EAs that help them often you know spend a lot of time doing it. Um, we give them reports every year so they mm. can benchmark themselves and learn. Um, it's recognised as a quality initiative as part of the stuff we have to do as our credentialing as a surgeon every year. Mm. Um, the government now has it listed in the handbook that we have for our fees that you should be contributing. Oh, Some okay. health insurers will only pay if the hospital where the procedures occurred um, is actually contributing to the yeah. registry. Oh, good. So there's a lot of triggers, but it's not actually compulsory. Mm. And that would probably be the next step, but that's a little harder to achieve. <laughs> I wish you luck. But uh, at the moment, what proportion of bariatric surgeons in Australia are with the registry? Look, we've got about 95% of people saying that they will be part of it. Mm. Um, We were up to just over 80% of capturing all procedures. Mm. And we capture them directly from the surgeon or we get them from the hospitals. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple of checks and balances Mm -hmm. that enable us to do that. COVID's been a little bit difficult. You know, and a lot of practices, particularly, say, in Victoria, where we had a lot, a lot of lockdowns, mm. you know, their practice staff maybe weren't working as many hours. Mm. There was no bariatric surgery going on. Mm. But we're starting to ramp up again and um, hopefully, you know, we'll get back to that over 80% pretty quickly. Fantastic. Um, and of the hospitals around the country, um, how many are doing bariatric surgery? I think there's about 165 hospitals doing bariatric mm-hmm. surgery. And, and of those hospitals that are, do, do you know how many participate in the, um, in the registry? registry? Most of them do. Oh, good. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. What, what are some of the changes that you've faced when trying to roll out a national program such as the registry? 
I suppose where to one, start <laughs> um, funding was no. been really difficult again. Yeah. We're fortunate the government has funded us, and we're very grateful for that. Fantastic. Um, ethics is very difficult, and privacy mm. laws. Mm. That's a whole podcast in itself. I think mm. just yeah. that you know, obviously, people's health information is private, and we mm. do need to respect that. But if we can share data, sometimes we can all learn mm. from that. Mm. But we, you know, navigating your way through how you do that ethically and with respect to the privacy laws can be very difficult and engaging Mm. surgeons in something that's Mm. voluntary can be very challenging but I'm very fortunate that most of my colleagues really see the value in this and they've really driven it so it's the very rare surgeon that doesn't participate. Mm, That's great to hear. Now we know that um, obesity rates are on the rise in Australia. Um, Its comorbidities have a huge impact on our health system and studies have shown that approximately 95% of diets fail in the long term. And bariatric surgeries are currently our best solution. So why is it so hard for people to access this procedure in the public hospital system? Yeah, it's, that's, it's a very good question. You know, I work in a state where there's some access and it's mm. very, actually reasonable access, mm. but it's nowhere near meeting the demand mm. out there. And... Obesity, unfortunately, does affect people who often are of lower socioeconomic means. Mm, mm. So there's a desperate need in the public system. And I guess what it comes down to is it's a resource-limited environment Mm. that we work within. And the um, administrators or the governments, the jurisdictions around the country, have to see the value in something Mm -hmm. um, for them to fund it. Because if they fund this, then they can't fund that necessarily. Mm. And so we've been trying to gather the evidence that shows that if you invest in helping someone lose weight through a procedure like this, not only do you help them lose weight, you help them get rid of their diabetes. Mm. They don't have to go to the diabetes clinic anymore. Mm. You help improve their joint pain. And we recently did a study that got published in JAMA that showed that after five years after bariatric surgery, 30% of people hadn't needed their joint replacement that we thought they would. Oh, brilliant. You know, so mm. then, they don't, then they don't have to be on the joint replacement waiting list anymore. If you help them lose weight, you improve their heart failure and they Mm. may not need a heart transplant. So it's about getting the evidence together so that people understand that this is a good investment. Mm. So these, you know, accountant type people or bureaucrats Mm. see Mm. the value in it. And we talk increasingly about value-based healthcare, Mm. that we should be doing what's of value to the patient. And I think Mm. bariatric surgery is a classic example of value value-based healthcare, mm. and it's something that really should be on their radars. But I think there is a genuine fear that if they open the doors, that the floodgates will open and we could mm. overwhelm every mm. hospital. So we have to be pragmatic. We can't mm. necessarily offer it to every single person with mm. obesity. Mm. Maybe in the public system it's very focused on who's most likely to get ben- you know, most benefit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And that's hard to define because everyone's definition of benefit yes. is different. Yes. I think the other thing we have to acknowledge is that just like mental health that's been terribly underfunded for a long time, Mm. there is still a stigma around Mm. obesity. Mm. And so it's much easier for a politician to say, I'm not going to fund bariatric surgery than to say, I'm not going to fund a rare cancer surgery because there's a lot more public empathy Mm. for the rare cancer Mm. than there is for the far more common problem of obesity. Yeah, there's not a lot of public empathy for obesity, unfortunately. Hopefully that'll change. Um, So we're hopefully... We'll see change in the future um, so that people without the financial means aren't disadvantaged as they are at the moment. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, 
If you had one piece of advice to someone to become healthier, what would it be? Lose weight. Lose weight, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you can lose weight. You don't need to lose a lot, but don't no. be disheartened. You don't need to lose a lot of weight. Mm. Even losing five kilos will make a massive difference to your health. Brilliant. Thank you. We appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge with our audience. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much yeah. for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. And for further information about weight loss, such as recipes and our range of shakes and other products, please visit the Formulite website. All advice is provided as a general guide only. Please consult your medical professional before starting any weight loss program.